1: Two out of three people with diabetes will pass away due to heart disease and stroke. However, we know that aggressive management can reduce these odds significantly. Joining us to discuss diabetes and its impact on the risk of heart disease is Professor of Medicine and Chief of Clinical Cardiology at Thornton Hospital at the University of California right here in San Diego, Dr. Daniel Blanchard. Dr. Blanchard, welcome to ReachMD.
2: Thanks for having me, Steve.
1: Let's start off with the basics. What is the link between diabetes and its impact on the risk for heart disease?
2: Well, as you know, diabetes is strongly linked with a number of risk factors for coronary problems like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, abdominal obesity, and all of these things are going to increase the risk of heart attack and of stroke. Uh, This risk of stroke and of heart attack unfortunately seems to start a long time before a person actually develops Uh, sugar problems with the diabetes, these problems probably start about 10 years before people actually develop full-blown diabetes.
1: What about inflammation and clotting abnormalities? Does that play a factor as well?
2: It sure does. People with diabetes seem to have a higher risk of inflammation going on in their system. Uh, There are a number of blood tests that we can look at that give us an idea of inflammation, And uh, with diabetes, these markers often go up. So there's more to it than just the high blood pressure and high cholesterol.
1: What are the typical blood tests you order when you're evaluating a patient, let's say, with type 2 diabetes uh, for heart disease?
2: We'll check a full lab panel, look at their cholesterol level, their HDL, their LDL. We'll also check uh, the highly sensitive CRP level, which is a good indicator of inflammation, And then, of course, we'll check for their kidney function, liver function, all that sort of thing.
1: You don't do the calcium cardiac score?
2: I generally leave that as a test for people where I'm just not sure how aggressive to be with treating their cholesterol. However, if someone comes in with diabetes and is otherwise feeling well, we think of them as high risk already. And so we're going to treat them aggressively whether or not they have calcification of their coronary arteries.
1: Well, in terms of screening for heart disease, uh, I know there's lots of tests uh, from the BRUCE protocol to stress echo. What's what's the latest and the most efficient way to pick up heart disease?
2: Well, we still use stress testing quite a bit, and I, I personally like stress echocardiography. There is no radiation involved. The test takes about an hour. We get a lot of information on heart function and valve function. Newer tests involve coronary CT scans, or other radiologic studies, Uh, the downside of those tests is that they all involve radiation, and then the uh, newer studies involve a fair amount of contrast, and that can affect people's kidneys even if it's used properly.
1: So at least for you, you like the stress echo. How often do you order that test?
2: It depends on the person. If it's a, a young, fairly active person who's exercising quite a bit, I might get it every two or three years or so. If it's someone who's quite sedentary, maybe doesn't watch their diet so well, has other risk factors. I might get that as often as every year just to make sure I don't miss anything.
1: I remember you telling me when uh, you did my stress echo, which looked good, you said, well, Steve, I can at least tell you you're not going to have a heart attack in the next year. And you only gave me a 12-month window and I had to go do the whole thing again. Sorry, Steve. That's what you get. As you know, I have type 1 diabetes for a long time. Are there any differences between type 1 and type 2 or men versus women?
2: Well, as you know, insulin resistance is much more of a problem in type 2 diabetes, I think also we see more hypertension, more abdominal obesity, and uh, the inflammation that comes along with that in type 2 diabetes. As far as men versus women, in the general population, we usually tell women that uh, you've got a 10-year delay compared to a man of your risk of heart attack and stroke, But with diabetes, it's different, and uh, women can be affected uh, fairly early in life, much earlier than they would be if they didn't have diabetes.
1: Now, there was a body of literature saying that when women uh, go to emergency rooms with heart pains and other symptoms, that they're ignored a lot more than men. Is that true?
2: I think we're getting better, but yes, that has been the case. Women with heart pain often present in slightly different ways than men do. For a long time, I think we weren't really quite aware of that. Now we're trying to do a better job with that, but... I think sometimes people believe that women are sort of immune, so to speak, from coronary disease, and women with with diabetes clearly are not.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk a moment about silent ischemia. I know that's very common in the diabetes literature where, you know, it, it can be set up for a dangerous situation.
2: Yeah. So ischemia is a condition where the heart's just not getting enough blood or oxygen. And in the great majority of people, that causes pain. But as you know, in diabetics, there can be neuropathy, that is abnormalities of nerve function, and sometimes the ischemia is silent in that there's no angina at all, no chest pain, and unfortunately, the ischemia is just as dangerous whether it causes pain or not. So if there is no pain, there is not the same degree of warning, and sometimes a diabetic with fairly severe coronary disease may present very late rather than early on with a heart attack.
1: Yeah, and that's why, uh, obviously, screening is so important for almost all the complications of diabetes, including retinopathy and nephropathy or kidney disease. Let's talk about the controversy that's come out recently, all these trials showing that aggressive glucose control doesn't really make an impact on heart disease. In fact, one showed that it actually caused some issues.
2: I think this is part of why, in medicine, we have to do the studies, that a lot of times the intuitive conclusion... Can be wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And with some of these studies, as you know, there were more complications in the groups that got aggressive insulin therapy to keep their blood sugar quite low. And I think there are a number of things to take from these studies. First is that sugar itself, the level of sugar in your bloodstream may not be all that important as far as the heart goes. What's more important probably is the blood pressure, the inflammation, and the hypercholesterolemia, the high cholesterol levels. But I also want to emphasize that the studies. That looked at lifestyle modification, not so much insulin usage, but lifestyle modification. Those showed a dramatic improvement in cardiovascular outcomes in those folks with diabetes who were better controlled. Through lifestyle and dietary measures.
1: I just want to add, as a diabetes specialist, that we have to really be aggressive in our patients based on the individual patient. And sometimes you can be too aggressive in an older person with insulin, and uh, we're worried about the incidence of hypoglycemia causing issues in those folks. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160 the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I am speaking with Dr. Daniel Blanchard. We are discussing diabetes and its impact on the risk of heart disease. What should our current course of action be to control cardiovascular disease?
2: Well, the first one, and we doctors sometimes overlook this, but the first one, of course, is advocating uh, good lifestyle habits and good eating habits. I think number one on the list, though, even above that, is stopping smoking. For those people out there still smoking, If you continue smoking, the chances are it will kill you. There's no way around that. So people have got to stop smoking, got to exercise more, got to change the diet more to a Mediterranean sort of diet, using lighter oils, decreasing red meat as much as possible. What about aspirin? Oh, aspirin, yeah. Anybody with diabetes should be on aspirin. We think of having diabetes as kind of having coronary disease already, and anybody with coronary disease ought to have an aspirin a day, unless there's some reason not to. The average dose that's effective is probably in the range of 160 milligrams. Some people, 81 milligrams seems to be enough. Anyone with diabetes with even mild elevation of cholesterol should be on a medication to drop that if dietary measures aren't enough.
1: What situation would a patient not be a candidate for aspirin? I know there's not that many, but I think it's important to discuss that.
2: There are rare people who have allergies to aspirin.
1: And what happens? How do you know?
2: They develop asthmatic sort of symptoms and they'll get nasal polyps and uh, have trouble breathing. That's really uncommon. Probably the most common reason why people can't take aspirin is that they're excessively sensitive to it and they've had trouble with bleeding in their stomach, that sort of thing.
1: Now, in terms of blood pressure agents, which ones are the best for people with diabetes?
2: For folks with diabetes, probably the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers to start with. That's where I usually start. Mm -hmm. I try, uh, at least in younger folks, to avoid diuretics because they can often raise the blood sugar and the LDL cholesterol. In older folks, particularly with systolic high blood pressure, diuretics are quite effective. And then I do like calcium channel blockers like amlodipine quite a bit. They don't affect the metabolic numbers much at all but they're very effective at decreasing the risk of stroke and bringing the blood pressure down.
1: Now, what about cholesterol? LDL should be less than 100. Any other situations where we need to be more aggressive?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think in the folks where uh, their triglycerides are quite high, that does seem to identify a group that are at higher risk, particularly if their HDL is low. So in those people, we'll start with a statin and see how we do as we increase the dose. And then if necessary, if the triglycerides remain quite high, I will generally start either a fish oil supplement or a drug called phenofibrate, which will drop triglycerides. I think there's some variance of opinion on the use of niacin in people with diabetes. I try to avoid it because it can throw the sugar out of whack. However, niacin is very effective in raising HDL. In people where nothing else will work.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. I also reserve niacin or niacin the slow release, uh, for those patients who don't respond or you can't get to go on the other medications. Well, my biggest problem in treating patients with diabetes and high LDL is that they hear so much in the literature about how these drugs can cause muscle and liver damage. And unfortunately, I think it's an unreasonable scare tactic out there. What do you say?
2: I agree with you. I think, first of all, The problem with the liver, that's an easy problem to fix. Every time we check a cholesterol level, we also check blood tests for the liver. And if there's ever a problem, we catch it very early. It's not a long-term difficulty at all. The fact is that a few percent of people on a statin do develop muscle aches. And unfortunately, there's no good blood test to see who's going to develop this. And if people have severe muscle aches, we cut back on the statin. We may try another one. But there are a few people where they just can't take them. But I want to emphasize that that's the minority of people. The great majority of people can take a statin without difficulty or perhaps with a little bit of muscle ache. But that little bit of muscle ache is clearly worth the benefit.
1: Great. Now, tell us the latest on stents versus bypass surgery.
2: In the last few years, there were a number of studies that suggested that bypass surgery was clearly superior to angioplasty for people with diabetes and severe heart disease. In the more recent years, there have been these newer stents called drug-eluting stents that are coded stents. And in these last few months, there have been a couple of studies that have come out showing that these drug-eluting stents work really pretty well for people with diabetes, And so I think we're kind of coming back to the point where we'd say if someone really doesn't want to have bypass surgery or does not have severe disease involving all of their blood vessels, that maybe a stent is a reasonable option, again, for the diabetic population.
1: Well, I would like to thank our guest, professor of medicine and chief of clinical cardiology at Thornton Hospital at the University of California in San Diego, Dr. Daniel Blanchard. Dr. Blanchard, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP1, visit Novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at
3: ReachMD.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com dia.